podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, this week's episode will be a short one um, because I'm right in the thick of the World Grand Prix. Um, and, of course, I've come here from the Scottish Open. Uh, this tournament not without its challenges with the the new COVID uh, situation. But uh, thankfully, the show goes on. And we're looking forward to a good week here in Coventry. Um, I plan to have a guest on this week. That didn't happen again, partly because of the the pandemic situation. But uh, we should start on a hopefully on an upbeat note by saying congratulations to Luca Purcell. Uh, very impressive, I think, to go from you know being runner up in a long tournament, twelve day tournament, in the UK Championship, and still having the focus and the application to go all the way and win the Scottish Open. And uh, absolutely. Uh, terrific to see him coming good again. Of course, it wasn't his first ranking title. He won one four years ago, the China Championship. But, you know, he's just been on a, on a golden run. And right back up the rankings again. You know, he's down in the 40s when the season began. He's now in the top 16. Uh, the only shame of it, he won't be at the Masters because they did the draw for that at the UK Championship. It's the only event where the draw is done not right before. Um, you know, the World Championship, the draw is done after the last counting event. Here at the World Grand Prix, the last counting event finished the night before. We didn't know exactly who was playing who until the night before, uh, because the seedings could be altered by whether John Higgins won the final or not. Um, but the Masters, they did the draw two tournaments early. Luca Brussel could win the World Grand Prix as well and not be in it. It just doesn't seem right to me. John Higgins spoke out about it. Several others did. And the reason is, there's only one reason, it's so the BBC can do the draw live on the telly. Now, that does have its advantages, because, of course... It advertises the Masters. The, the um, playing schedule was done later that day, so uh, it was a chance to sell more tickets. But tickets have been on sale for a long time, and they don't struggle to sell tickets, Alexandra Palace. Um, it just seems a shame. If you're going to say it's the best top, it's the best 16 players in the world, clearly at the moment, Purcell is one of those, and he's not going to be in the tournament. And I just think it's a shame. A lot of people, as usual, coming up with their own theories. There's only one reason. I know for a fact, because World Snooker will tell you if you ask them, the draw is done at the UK Championship because the BBC want to show it live. Begs the question, if they're keen on draws, why not show the Crucible draw, which they're offered every year and they don't show? <laughs> it's shown eventually on, well, the Eurosport website, Betfred. BBC don't show the draw for that, and that's a draw a lot of people would want to see, because that is an interesting one. Anyway, uh, Callum Law always, always writes in after each tournament, and um, this is what he has to say about the Scottish Open. Getting in touch after the Scottish Open, I seem to find myself saying this after every tournament, but it was another very enjoyable week of snooker. As a John Higgins fan, I was again left disappointed in the final. However, I couldn't begrudge Luca Brussel victory because he played great stuff, particularly after his disappointment in the UK Championship. When Luca kept knocking in amazing long reds from tight on the ball cushion, I thought there would come a time in the match where he would start missing them and John would get more chances and punish him. But Luca barely missed so fair play. In terms of John, I thought that was probably the least painful of the four final defeats this season. With the Northern Irish and English losing from Turk with three to play always hurts. And the champion of champions from 3-0 up, he seemed to go missing. But in this final, he just wasn't quite at it in the first session. And Luca's good play, combined with a little bit of good running, left him too much to do. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. And despite the final defeats, rightly and wrongly, I still believe we'll see John Higgins picking up trophies again. As an aside, why do meetings in the Championship League not count in the head-to-heads between two players? I heard Philip Studd mention in commentary they weren't counted in head-to-heads and just wondered why. Keep up the great podcast and have a Merry Christmas when it comes. Well, thank you, Callum. Uh, we'll try. We'll all try and have a nice Christmas, but as I say, at the moment, uh, the news is not good, is it? But uh, in terms of uh, Higgins, well, as I said, actually, I can't remember. <laughs> can't remember now which final defeat it was, whether it was Belfast, whether it was Milton Keynes, or whether it was 
Bolton. But I did say you can only really judge in a year's time whether, and it's the same with Ronnie O'Sullivan at the moment, you know, between them they've lost the last nine finals, which is pretty incredible, really, uh, for those two winning machines. But you can only really judge in the fullness of time whether this is just a blip and they'll get back to winning ways or whether actually they are now struggling to, to win these tournaments. For Higgins to get to another final, I mean, it's incredible, really. Four finals this season. That just shows you a player who's just playing great stuff. I mean, he's a great player, full stop. Um, and as you say, he never really competed. I thought Brazil was very positive. You could see how good he was feeling about his game after the UK run. Went for his shots and, and good luck to him. You know, he, he played really well. In terms of the Championship League in the head-to-heads, when I took over as a statistician for the BBC, and we're going back, 2004 now, so it's quite a long time ago, there was kind of an iron rule then that best of five should not be counted because they were regarded as too short a distance. Then what happened was the Grand Prix uh, in Aberdeen, they played a a sort of round-robin best of five, and it was felt then they should count because it's a ranking event, Um, whereas before the best of fives had been basically sort of far-off invitation events, a lot of the matchroom events in the 80s and so on. but as a general rule, when the Championship League came in, it was just felt that it was, would completely skew the head-to-head because it's not the same uh, motivation a match. A knockout match, you've got to win to go through. If you lose, you go home. In the Championship League, you, you know, you can lose and potentially you've already actually qualified, so the match is not that meaningful to you. Or you can go into it, you're already out, and you just bash the balls up. So it was kind of felt, A, that the, the distance is too short, and B, it would completely skew the whole head-to-head and that is kind of the rule we've stuck to. Now, people, of course, are entitled, if they want, to just count all the meetings, and that's you can go on Q-Track and do that. But for television purposes, we don't. We count, uh, essentially, the knockout matches. Uh, hopefully, that answers your question. James Watson from Lancashire writes, I'd like to get your opinion on something. We're well used to hearing Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Williams saying about how if they lose, they're not bothered. But lately, it seems more and more players are having this attitude. During the Scottish Open studio interviews with players... Both Ben Wollaston and Dave Gilbert said similar things. Also, Luca Purcell stated something similar in his recent WST podcast interview. D- WST have a podcast in there? I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure there's a few more also. Why is this? Has the intensity changed on tour due to pure volume of tournaments? Or are players just happy earning a decent wage rather than winning tournaments? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, then he says, on a completely different note, can commentators stop breathing down the mics when they're not speaking? It's one of my pet hates in life. Well, uh, from my perspective, James always turned mine off when between talking. But anyway, um, I, I think they all care. I, I'm, I don't buy all this. We're not, we don't care. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan, great match with Jamie Jones at Scottish Open. Really fantastic match. Jamie played great. At one point, Ronnie lost position playing from red to black and thumped the table, you know, in, in total frustration. Now, you don't do that if you don't care. When they're playing out in the match, they care. I think, looking at it from a wider perspective, taking the sort of philosophical route, maybe those older players like O'Sullivan and Williams, you know, they can be satisfied with their careers. Clearly, they're not they're not sort of looking at the ones that got away. They they they've got the titles that have made them all time greats. So, sort of taking a step back, maybe, you know, they're not as intense about the circuit when they're around the circuit but when they're playing they're as competitive as ever and that's why they've won so many tournaments because they're just great competitors now I, I made the mistake last week of uh, revealing my snooker dream involving John Parrott and chess um, and Dave Tyndall a long time friend of the podcast has written in he said he jogged a memory one I had a few weeks ago basically I was at a venue somewhere and snooker players were being introduced on stage one by one 
Nothing in, unusual in that, except they were all in drag and had stage names. <laughs> First up, the MC, Phil Seymour, I think, announced to the baying crowd, Give a big hand for Jacqueline Lazowski. The crowd roared and outwaltzed. If this was the 1970s, I'd say minced. Jack Lazowski, dressed like a woman from the Roaring Twenties, sporting a thin dress and bonnet, a sort of Great Gatsby look. There was obviously scope for more. Rennie O'Sullivan, Joan Higgins, Nell Robertson and Jan Bing Tao spring to mind. But frustratingly, I either woke up or my dream turned to something else. Logic says this dream came during the Champion of Champions when there was much talk about fashion and the player's shirts, but it didn't. I think some serious Freudian, Freudian dream analysis is required here. I think you're on safer ground with chess. Well, Dave, I did consult a, a dream analyst, and uh, the feedback I've got from him is that you're a lunatic. So that's uh, <laughs> that's just uh, just a, the official word there. Yes, drag is very popular, of course, at the moment. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe you've been watching uh, the RuPaul show on uh, BBC Three. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I think we'll leave that there because it's we're not far off libeling people, I think. Now, the big topic, never mind all this, never mind, never mind the Scottish Open, never mind players in drag, the big topic has been the email we had last week about the lowest possible score in uh, in a frame, which uh, it, it was worked out was 31 points. Um, and uh, we've had a few people write in, essentially confirming this, but coming up with different ways of getting to 31. But you've all come up with the same uh, score, which is basically someone... Pots all, I mean, it's ridiculous, really. Someone pots all 15 reds in one shot, goes in off. So it's four points. And then there's a various ways people can pot the colours uh, and get to the end of the frame. Um, who have we got here? Christian from Switzerland. Uh, he, he's come up with the same thing. He said the lowest possible score in a frame is not 17-14. By my calculation, it's possible to get a score of 16-8. He goes through all this. We come down to the black, essentially. The black remains on the table, of course... If it's 16-8 with the black on, they don't need the black. But with all balls potted, it'll be 16-15. I hope everyone's following this, because there's more on it. Uh, who have we got here? Adam Wareham. He said, I write in relation to Aaron Power's email where he stated 31 is the lowest possible score in a frame. I agree this is the lowest if all balls are potted. But I think a frame can be completed with only 24 points scored. So this is the same point, essentially, that the black is not, uh, the black is not potted. Going to move on actually from that. I think we did have a couple more about it, but uh, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Paul Redding, I love your podcast and always look forward to the next episode. My query is that sometimes players seem to virtually ignore the referee at the end of a match. I appreciate the relationship between players and refs is professional, but it sometimes almost feels rude. I wonder what your views on this. Uh, I don't think there's any deliberate snub. I think you know that the referee is not there to really get involved in in anything other than just the match is over and you know there's normally in normal times in inverted commas a handshake maybe a fist bump now um i don't think players deliberately snub the ref so i just think you know they they if you lose you want to kind of get out of there and if you win you know you usually got media obligations to go to and whatever um so i would say the relationship between players and, and officials in snooker is one of the best of any sports, really. I mean, there's very rarely any aggro, very rarely any any real problems. There's there's respect on both sides, um, and thankfully the referees are so good these days. As as a group, when we talk about strength and depth from the players, as a group for the officials, it's probably better than it's ever been, which is why you don't get real controversies. I mean, you might get a couple of things here and there, but in general, you know, we're we're, we're lucky to have such a a diligent uh, a diligent bunch. Tom Milliard, he says, it's been a long time since I wrote. Thank you for the continued work on the podcast on Eurosport. 
I'm going to ask you about a couple of things that listeners may find interesting. Firstly, how do they work out the stats, statistics for matches? While pot success is simple enough, how do they calculate what's a long pot and what's a successful safety? What happens if the safety is on the cushion, but the opponent knocks in a cracking red? Perhaps you can shed some light on this. My next point concerns getting and keeping younger players on the professional tour. From observing most new young players on the tour, it seems most of them don't manage much in the first season. A whole new level, totally new experience, match tables, etc. But tend to do better in the second season, which is too late for the ranking points. My suggestion would be to give new players on the tour, or under a certain age for the first time, for example 25, a three-year card. First year of this, the players can earn money, but not ranking points, although they could be counted for the one-year list maybe. This would allow the young player to learn the ropes, gain experience and play without the stress of the rankings hanging over them. Players would only be able to have this card once, of course. Well, Tom, uh, it's an interesting idea. I suppose the, the only problem is, what if in that first year they actually did great? You know, <laughs> it would be a shame if, if a player maybe won a tournament and didn't actually rise up the rankings as a result of it. Um, it's an interesting uh, topic, I think, this, though, because the, the rankings... I was talking to a player yesterday... Um, and he raised an issue that I hadn't really thought about, and I hadn't thought about it, I think, because I'm not a player, but it's very pertinent to them. And that's this business with, of the, the two-year system that's included tournaments in China that obviously are not on now, and, and that's no one's fault, they're just not on now, but they're all big money events. A lot of players have got money coming off those events that they can't actually defend in a like-for-like -like event. We've lost tournaments with £150,000 first prizes and a lot of prize money going sort of filtering down through the rounds that they can't now defend. So players who did well two years ago are dropping down the rankings because even if they do well in a lot of these tournaments, it's not like for like. And he was saying maybe, you know, the, 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 I mean, it's a prize money system, we know, but maybe it should have been tweaked for this extraordinary time we're in, the pandemic era, and maybe more ranking points should be offered for the tournaments at the moment to sort of balance out the two years. Um, because players... I was suffering for it. Tep Charan Nu is a player who could go off the tour. Now, he was in a, a big final in China two years ago. He'd lost those points. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think uh, I think it's something that I hadn't really considered. Um, but as I say, I'm not a player. Obviously, it's something they're looking at. And there's, there's players, you know, who are looking at the tournaments to come. But the World Championship is going to decide a lot of it because, you know, you look at something like Gibraltar, the prize structure in that tournament is so kind of... Well, skinny, I suppose the word would be. You know, you have to get to the, the final, really, to significantly improve your ranking. There aren't that many tournaments really left. And on the subject of kind of players down the list, and of course we had the, the discussion about whether they should pay prize money to first-round losers or cover their expenses. Steve Dawson, the World Snooker chairman, was on the podcast a few months back, and he sort of parroted the Barry Hearn line about not paying mediocrity. I think a lot of people would argue they're not mediocre. They're professional snooker players. They're the best in the world. The 128, that, they are the best players in the world. And there's a, there's a, certainly an argument, a school of thought that they should earn something. Um, Stephen Hallworth was on the Talking Snooker podcast. Very intelligent guy, I think, Stephen. Good speaker. And of course, he's down, down the rankings and, and he's supporting his snooker career working in a pub. Um, and he said, hey, he had some very good ideas and spoke well, I think, about not only that, but also why more should be done to try and promote some of the players down the list. Um, so that when they turn up, for example, on a, on a, in, on a TV event, you don't hear the commentator say, well, I don't know anything about him. You know, maybe if more was done to promote certainly some of the younger players, 
Um, Snooker maybe will be in a better position, but worth checking that out. It's a good chat with Stephen, and look forward to working with him next week uh, at the Championship League. Hell, yeah, this there's more. There's more Snooker to come after the World Grand Prix. Paul Leavesley writes, I thoroughly enjoyed your recent podcast when you and Alan McManus visited the Norbert Castle in Blackpool. Despite never having been to the aforementioned venue, hearing yourself and Alan exchange stories about the heady days of multiple tournament qualifying, it made me feel as if I was... If it's, if it's, to get this out, it kills me. It made me feel as if I was almost there. Perhaps you and Alan could go back there sometime in the future and do a feature for ITV4. Speaking of ITV4... Have they ever thought of joining the Red Button Revolution? I say this frustratingly because when they do take two-table coverage, the same match shown on TV is invariably shown on the ITV hub. And not all tournaments are available to subscribers of Matchroom Sport in the UK or the Eurosport player. Well, on the first point, um, glad you enjoyed that. I mean, it would be a very niche programme for ITV4, wouldn't it? Maybe, uh, maybe a sort of small feature. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think Alan and myself have sort of um, ambitions to... You know, do a sort of uh, a genuine series, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. And if we're, if we're near any other old venues, we'll certainly visit them. Um, I can't speak for ITV4 in terms of the red button. I understand what you're saying about the second table. I know for a fact that again before the pandemic, there was talk about expanding the whole ITV hub side of it, and maybe even doing commentary on table two and so on. Whether that's been put on the back burner for now, I'm not sure because n- not much more has been heard about it. Um, but yeah, I, I understand uh, what you're saying, but I, I literally cannot answer for them because I don't, I don't know uh, anything about it. Paul Tibble writes, what, what would or does happen if a player's cue is accidentally broken during a match? I don't know of an instance where this has happened. I don't know of an instance where this has happened, but maybe, you know, different. On another note, I heard Judd's views that more money... Hang on a minute. Sorry about this, my computer has decided to do something that it shouldn't do. Here we are. We're back in business. I, I see another podcast would edit, edit that out, but you know I like to be honest and, and admit this is a shambles. <laughs> he says on another note, I heard Judd's view that more money needs to be in the prize element of snooker. I think he used golf and tennis as examples. Do you feel the sponsorship of snooker needs to be looked at, or is the use of betting companies the way to continue? I'm aware that Kazoo aren't a betting company, but to my knowledge, anyhow. Um, he says, keep up the great pod, and I, for one, enjoy the results being given during commentary. Uh, there you see, one in the eye for James Cook. Uh, anyway, thank you, Paul. Um, well, there was an example of, of a cue being broken. Adam Witchard in the cue school broke his cue. I think he was playing, playing Chris Wakelin. He broke his cue during the match, had to concede. That's because you need to be able to play. So if you can't borrow someone else's, um, yeah, you, you, you literally don't have the equipment to play. But that happened, uh, I think it was 3-2 down. And somehow lent on it. I mean, it's a bizarre accident, really. I don't know. You, you've got to obviously put a lot of weight on a cue to break it. Somehow he lent on it and uh, snapped and had to concede. So it has happened, um, but obviously very rare. Uh, in terms of the prize money in snooker, it's amazing how, I've said this before, players always compare snooker to the sports with more money in them, like golf and tennis. They never look at sports that have less money. Um, we don't, we're not bl- overly blessed with sponsors and it doesn't help, I don't think, when players go on the television on tournaments and constantly find ways to criticise the sport or even tell people not to play the sport. That doesn't help the game at all. Um, but it's a different... It's viewed as a different type of sport. It's not athletic. It appeals to a sort of working-class audience and it's thought, you know, obviously by companies that they don't have that much money to spend, etc., etc. Um, Kazoo, it's good to see them coming in. As you say, they're not a betting company. Um, we have Bet Victor, we have Bet Fred, and at the moment that's kind of it. But at least they're putting money into the game, um, and most of the income 
in snooker, there's three streams of income, really. There's ticket sales, sponsorship and broadcasting and streaming rights. And by far, the biggest income for the game comes from broadcasting and streaming rights. Ticket sales, um, certain tournaments are certainly, you know, financially good. Um, and sponsorship as well plays its part, but the broadcast rights are the major sort of supplier of money to the sport. And thankfully, you know, we have so many TV companies that, that want to show the, show the sport. Now, Morgan Nock writes, We often hear players talking about the cushions being bouncy, or indeed not, or the tables playing slowly, etc. Clearly this is sometimes down to atmospheric conditions, humidity and such. But I playfully thought, do the table fitters have a knock around after they put the tables up? Sitting on that thought for some time, I came up with my question. Do the tables fitters have a knock around after they put the tables up? <laughs> well, it's not so much a knock around. Um, they do, obviously, they... they they do their best to test the table. Is it running true? Um, are there any issues with it that need addressing? Martin Clark is a former top 16 player who's now tournament director at many of the World Snooker Tour events. So he quite often will come out um, with, a, with a cue and, you know, test it. Play slow rolls and play sort of shots that will tell you if it's running true or not. You're right, though, over the course of the week, the weather can affect things. Every arena is different. Every arena presents its own challenges. In the main, World Snooker Services, who, whose guys are at these tables, do a fantastic job. I think it's a shame you often only hear about the table when, it's, when there's a problem with it. Most of the time, there isn't a problem. Most of the time, the tables run, run great. Um, and those guys, I mean, it's, it's hard work lugging those slates around and working through the night to get all the tables up. Not just the arena tables, but practice tables as well. And obviously, it's a bigger challenge when you have tournaments with uh, multiple, multiple tables. So... Uh, they do a good job, but that's the answer. They don't have a knock around as such, but they do, you know, they play shots to effectively test the table. Malcolm Johnston, the topic of his email, do I have a problem? Well, let's find out. He says, as a self-confessed snooker addict, I was wondering if any of your listeners have the same issue I find myself with. All of the TVs in my house have the same snooker table shaped image burned into the screen. When I switch them on at first, the startup screen is dark and a clear rectangle shape with the three bolt colours and the blue are as clear as day. Then, by the off chance the snooker isn't being played during some scenes, the same image appears, especially the pocket leathers. Do I have a problem? Unlike a lot of other men, my wife Lorraine is a very keen Q-sports enthusiast. In fact, she's an England international, although the website can't spell our surname. It's a pool, uh, EPA pool, that uh, Malcolm's talking about. So I've never had an issue with snooker clashing with any soap operas. On a different note, I'd like to thank you for the time and effort you put into your fantastic podcast. Even with more snooker shows becoming available, this hourish slice of niche snooker chat is a highlight of the week. In my opinion, since you've taken the show on as a solo endeavour, it's gone up a notch. It makes the shows uh, you do with a guest more of an event. Uh, it's nice of you to sell that, Malcolm, because this is probably the worst ever episode that you're currently listening to. But anyway, we'll move on. He says, I know your guests do it for the love as well, but I was wondering if given a chance be possible to ask a retired or senior pro like Alan McManus or Joe Perry to talk through life as a professional snooker player away from tournaments and the commitment it takes of the hours and hours of practice. The factors that don't get much attention are on mid-session intervals on TV like some players' constant search for a new cue to make the difference or other pros looking for that perfect tip to make them winners. I'm sure I'm not the only nuts who would love to hear this. 
Well, uh, Joe Perry certainly someone who I should get on because he's a good talker, Joe, and uh, he's actually working with us here this week. But it, it's just been awkward that the sort of um, the new COVID restrictions it actually makes it quite hard to sit down with people and and kind of do all that stuff. Um, Alan's been on many times, of course, always worth listening to. Um, well, do do you have a problem? No, you don't have a problem. You're a snooker fan, and there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's a lot of snooker to watch, as I say, after this tournament the, uh, on free sports in the UK. You can watch uh, the Championship League if you haven't had enough this year. Um, and then it all starts again uh, in the new year. It's quite hard to do the podcast at the moment because, as I say, we're just in the thick of so many events. I've been basically uh, at it since the Champion of Champions. Um, and the, the sort of COVID restrictions coming in as well, uh, it just makes it hard to sort of sit down with people. Um, but anyway, let's let's not end on a downbeat note. Having said that, I did, there's an update on the German events. I mean, it's looking very likely now that those events will be played in the UK. Um, I think there's an, sort of an announcement in Germany uh, coming up about their indoor events, but if they can't sell tickets, uh, the Tempodrome and in Firth, then what's the point really in having them there? Um, the good news is if they have them in the UK, there is potential to sell tickets. But then, then again, we don't know what's going to happen in the new year. World Snooker are, are very bullish about the Masters. They think that's going to go ahead at Ali Pali with crowds, but it's out of their hands, isn't it? Um, you know, we don't know how the next couple of weeks are going to pan out, but I think we'll we'll, we'll find out much more about all this probably before the end of the year. Um, it's uh, it's a difficult time, but anyway, the snooker goes on. That's the, that's the good thing, and um, you know, this World Grand Prix shaping up to be uh, another good week. And as I say, Championship League next week as well. Uh, it's a short edition. Uh, this week, as you will have noticed, but there is a Christmas special coming up. I'll say no more about that. But uh, it actually will be special, unlike most, unlike most Christmas specials that just promise to be. So uh, I will be. Yes, I won't say any more. But it will involve other people. You'll be glad to hear. Um, we're proud members, meantime, of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts, uh, and you can email us snookersinpodcast at mail dot com. That's snookersinpodcast at mail dot com. Uh, for now. And don't worry, that beer advert is coming round again because I must get my free case from them. Uh, but for now, as we always say, it's goodbye bye. What's better than eight free beers? That's right, ten. The festive season is upon us, and in the spirit of giving and charity, Beer 52 are offering listeners ten free beers. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com slash snooker and cover £5.95 for postage to claim your free case. What's more, do it before the 17th of December and get two extra beers. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send experts around the globe to find the best beer available anywhere on planet Earth. Each month, their members receive a new case, usually from a different part of the world. Members have had beer from more than 40 countries across five continents. Grab yourself this treat in time for Christmas. You can impress friends, family and dinner guests with a cast of happy IPAs, crisp craft lagers and sumptuous stouts. If dark beer is not your thing, simply choose the light option instead of a mixed case. As well as all the delicious beer, you'll receive Ferment magazine, which delves into the beers, breweries and theme. You'll also get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. After redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club at £24 a month. No minimum commitment, pause or cancel at any time. Remember, go to www.beer52.com slash snooker to claim your free case. Sports Social Podcast Network.